um, my parents are here, and, and I couldn't help but think of this funny story that my mom loves to tell. When I was little, um, and the church softball team was playing, uh, where they were playing were these bushes. And uh, one day I was standing over there by those bushes, and I was doing like this. I must have been three, maybe three years old. And I was doing like this, and my papa came up and said, David, what are you doing? And I said, shh, uh, there's ticks in there. And he said, how do you know there are ticks in there? He said, I can hear them. They're going tick, 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 tick. So apparently when I was little, I believed that ticks actually made a tick, 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 tick sound. And that's how you could watch out for them. I wish it were that easy, right? You know, and that got me to thinking about, uh, and I was just thinking about this this morning, about all the things that people used to believe. I'm sure there are some silly things that you believed when you were younger. Uh, as a, as a, as just as a human race, we look at the past, and at one point we thought the earth was flat. Apparently some people still do. At one point we thought that the earth was the center of the universe and everything revolved around the earth. We at one time believed in bloodletting. Just let out enough blood, let those humors out of your body, and you'll get better. We put leeches on people and stuff like that. People used to believe that when redheads died, they turned into vampires. Watch out. They believed that train travel would cause instant insanity. And at one point they thought that if you, if you went fast enough in a train or a car, you wouldn't be able to breathe anymore. You'd suffocate. And I think that was like 30 miles an hour. You know, Roller coasters go faster than that. At one point people believed that evil spirits resided in Brussels sprouts. You know, I think that might be true. <laughs> I think that one might be true. But you know what? We have silly beliefs today, don't we? There are things people think today, things that are popular, things that are, that are the latest fad and philosophy that someday people look back at and shake their heads about us too. We tend to suffer from what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery, where we believe that we are so much more knowledgeable and sophisticated and intelligent and evolved than people in the past were. You know, we, we, we look at, 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 at our ancestors and we're so quick to judge and to condemn them, which is why you've got some people today renaming forts and schools and tearing down statues because we have this chronological snobbery against the people of the past. Because, you know, here in the 21st century, we're so much more enlightened and compassionate and tolerant and kind, right? No, we're not. And we aren't any better. We're not any more evolved or sophisticated or enlightened than people were thousands of years ago. We struggle with the same things they did. Slavery, for example. Currently around the world, there are 27 million people in slavery today. That's more than at any time in human history, including the 400 years of the transatlantic slave trade. There are more slaves around the world today in the 21st century. Or think about genocide. Certainly genocide is something that we left behind with the Soviets and the Nazis, right? Well, what about the attacks by Hamas and ISIS and Al-Qaeda? What about the, the Christian slaughters that are happening among Christians? The, the Muslims are killing Christians in record numbers in Sudan and Nigeria today. In fact, there's more Christian persecution around the world today than at any point in human history. And there are dozens of people groups around the world that are at constant risk of genocidal attack today. Oppression, racism, murder, abortion, prejudice, sexual immorality, gender confusion are all real problems today. And all of these are the result of denying the image of God in every human being. If we want to address 
these kinds of challenging and controversial issues, if we want to be able to speak to them intelligently today, we've got to get back to square one, back to Genesis, back to the foundational truth that people are uniquely and distinctly created by God in His image. And when we allow that truth to shape the way we see people, it will challenge our views and change our hearts. The way we think about, speak about, and treat other people will be changed. Last Sunday was Sanctity of Life Sunday, and that word sanctity comes from the Latin word sanctus that means holy, set apart, dedicated. It's the root word of the word we use when we talk about sanctification, whereby we as Christians grow spiritually to become more set apart from the ways of the world, more dedicated to loving and following Jesus. So when we talk about the sanctity of human life, we're saying that humans are set apart, distinct from anything else, dedicated for a special purpose, and that every human being is unique and of infinite worth and value to God. Last week we talked about what it means for us to be made in God's image, how we are made to reflect God's character, embody God's kingdom, and partner with God in furthering His creation. That all speaks to the why of our creation. But this morning I want to get down to the what. What makes us different from everything else that God made? What is our relationship with the rest of creation? And what difference does all of this make in our lives today? So three main things I want us to point out out of Genesis 1 and 2. And that first one is that humanity is distinctly designed. First, let it roll around in your mind that you are made. You're made. You didn't make yourself. We didn't just evolve like some cosmic accident. We're not just the product of some random impersonal force. You were made, created, designed. Think about that for a minute. And look with me at Genesis chapter 1. Let's look at verses 11 and 12. I'm just going to highlight a little bit of this and then look back at verses 20 through 25. Just a few phrases in here I want to point out. God said, Let the earth produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And it was so. The earth produced vegetation, seed-bearing plants according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. He dropped down to verse 20, the same thing. Let the water swarm with living creatures. Let the birds fly above the earth. Uh, God created large sea creatures and every living thing, creature that moves and swarms in the water according to their kinds. And we go on in verse uh, 24. Let the earth produce living creatures according to their kinds. You get the picture. We see this word kind, according to their kinds. In other words, dogs make dogs, they don't make cats, right? It's pretty basic biology, I would think. Living things produce other things like themselves. And God established that law of nature along with everything else by His power and authority. God merely spoke, and that's the way it was. And God saw what He made. He declared it good. Everything happened as God wanted it. And last week we saw that there happens this significant change in verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in His own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. Notice how intimately God is involved in our creation. It's not like He said, let the earth, let the waters. He said, let us make man in our image. God is speaking to Himself. And the man and the woman weren't created after any other kind or likeness 
We, were, we share our likeness with the Creator. We're unlike any other creature in that we are made in God's likeness after His kind. And throughout this chapter, we see this idea of distinction. We talked about this already, the orderliness of God's creation, this separation, this distinction between day and night, the heavens and the earth, the waters above and the waters below, the land and the sea, and between the people made in God's image and all the other creatures. There's a distinction. And these distinctions in Genesis 1 are essential to a biblical worldview. Some of the most troubling issues of our day are the result of attempts to deny, confuse, or blur these inherent distinctions that God has made in our world. So look with me now at Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. In Genesis 2, we're zooming in, right? We, we, we kind of get this, this big picture view of God creating the world and He creates... Uh, male, you know, man in his image, male and female. Genesis 2, we're zooming in. We're getting a more up-close, more detailed look at what that was like. And it says in verse 7, "...and the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being." That's Adam. Now look at verses 21 through uh, 22. "...so the Lord caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs." closed the flesh at that place, and the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman, that's Eve, and brought her to the man. And the man said, This one at last is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for she was taken from man. So when God created people, He was hands-on. He got His hands dirty. In verse 7, that word there that He formed the man, that's not the same word we've been seeing in Genesis 1 that means created or made. No, this word literally means crafted, shaped. It's the same word used when a potter is making some pottery out of clay. God formed us from the dirt. We are of the earth. In fact, that's right there in Adam's name. The Hebrew word for earth or ground is Adamah. So Adam is literally from the ground. He's the man from the earth. But then God breathed into the man the breath of life. So we are of the earth and we are of heaven. We're made from the dirt of the ground and from the breath of God. And the Hebrew word for breath, it's the same word that's used throughout the Bible for spirit. It's ruach. So literally, God's doing more than just putting oxygen in His lungs. God is imparting something of Himself in Adam, that spark, that divine image, and then he takes something of Adam and puts in Eve. And all this speaks to this personal, relational connection that we have with our Creator and we have with one another as men and women. We are more than just sophisticated, betterly adapted creatures. We aren't distinct from other organisms by matter of degree, but of kind. Humans are uniquely created in God's image. And when we recognize every person is made in God's image, it has radical implications for our lives, for our world. Every human being is sacred. Every human is of infinite worth and value to God. And when we embrace that simple yet profound truth, seemingly complicated issues become clear. I want us to think about a few of those distinctions real quick. First, humanity is distinct from God. From God. Now, you've probably seen the film Rudy. And in the film Rudy, uh, he's talking to the Catholic priest there on campus, Father Kavanaugh, and they're talking about some theological questions. And the priest says this. He says, Son, in 35 years of religious study, I've come up with only two hard, incontrovertible facts, 
There is a God, and I'm not Him. Well, first I want to say, if after 35 years of Bible study, that's the only two things he came up with, he may not be the smartest uh, person in the bunch there, but, uh, but what he said is true. And it's profound, and it's something we often forget. There is a God. You and I are not Him. Or as the psalmist put it, know that the Lord Himself is God, it is He who has made us, and not we ourselves. We are His people, the sheep of His pasture. Now, a lot of religions and philosophies get this terribly wrong. The New Age movement, Eastern mysticism, religions like Buddhism and Hinduism, they all believe that either we are gods or that God lives within us and, or that we are somehow divine ourselves. And, and people that hold to those worldviews tend to either become dismissive of sin and suffering, they try to find ways to justify their behaviors and lifestyles, or they become so disenchanted and cynical and depressed about life in the world because if you are God and things are falling apart around you... <laughs> Who do you turn to? Where do you go? If you are divine, you're in a world of hurt. Some of the worst atrocities in human history have come when leaders hold themselves up as God. Think about the pharaohs of Egypt, the Caesars of Rome, or more recently Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, Mao Zedong. Think about all of the tens of millions who died in the last century under atheistic communist regimes. The horrors wrought by Nazi doctors and in the Holocaust because they believed in Darwinian evolution. When societies reject God, someone or something is going to step in to fill that void. Either a dictator, the state, or some technology. And history shows us when that happens, terrible consequences result. People suffer and they die. Humanity is distinct from God. We are not God. Amen? Amen. I hope you understand that. Secondly, humanity is distinct from the rest of creation. Now, again, materialistic philosophies, Darwinian evolution, scientism, human secularism, they view people as nothing more than evolved animals. We're little more than biological machines that run solely on the genetic programming of our DNA and hormones and our innate sense of self-preservation. It's just survival of the fittest. But Psalm 8, 5, and 6 tells us that God made us little less than Himself and crowned us with glory and honor. The psalmist said, You made Him rule over the works of your hands. You put everything under His feet. We are distinct and separate from the rest of creation. Yes, we are creatures ourselves, but then God took us and He set us apart. He gave us authority over all of the creatures of the earth. The first things that God told Adam to do were to name the animals and to work the garden. He put us in charge. And when we deny this distinction, when we see people as just higher forms of animal life, again, it leads to terrible consequences. If people are no better than animals, then we can be treated like animals, right? If our worth and value is only in what we can produce like cattle or sheep, is that not the justification for slavery? If we are no better than animals, we can be put down like an animal. Is that not justification for euthanasia and genocide? How does an atheist argue against murder? much less mass murder or slavery if we aren't set apart from the animal kingdom. If you and I are inherently no different than a dead deer on the side of the road, then what does anything matter? 
How can we have a society? How can we have laws? How can we treat each other compassionately and justly? Now, the converse error of this is just as dangerous. When we elevate, instead of just dumbing us down to the animals, some people want to elevate animals and nature to our level or even to divinity and see animals as even more important than us. And that's what pantheistic religions do. And there's a developing modern-day pantheistic religion that is environmental extremism that literally takes the world, the earth, and idolizes it above human flourishing. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, he talks about people who claim to be wise and they become fools. Boy, that sounds like today, doesn't it? Exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served what has been created instead of the Creator who is praised forever. Amen. When we exchange the Creator for His creation, when we worship what has been made rather than its Maker, then we end up with pantheism. We end up with extreme animal rights activists. We end up with environmental extremists that that have religious devotion to their ideology. Now, don't get me wrong. We have to be good stewards of the earth, and I'm going to preach a whole sermon on that. But environmentalism for its own sake is idolatry. And there are a lot of people today who are throwing science and reason and common sense to the wind in pursuit of what amounts to nothing more than modern-day earth worship. And that just leads to more human suffering. It denies God the glory due His name. It elevates what has been made to a place of worship and devotion. When we view ourselves or others as no different than the animals, we devalue humanity. And we end up justifying anything. I mean, if birth and sex and eating and sleeping, if all of this is just biological processes with no deeper meaning, with no spiritual implications, then we can justify anything. We can mistreat people. We can justify sexual immorality, the degrading of our bodies, unhealthy habits, and we develop a culture that celebrates and embraces death rather than life. When we forget that distinction between us and the rest of creation. Thirdly, men and women are distinctly different. Let's look back at Genesis 1.27. What does it say? God created man in His own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. Now look with me at chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, and there's no truer word spoken in Scripture than this, it is not good for the man to be alone. I'm a testament of that. I'll make a helper corresponding to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal, every bird of the sky, and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man. He slept. God took one of his ribs, closed the flesh at that place, and the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for she was taken from man." This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife and they become one flesh. Now, the first words, there in verse 18, the first words that we hear God speak in Genesis chapter 2 are, it is not good. 
Now think about that. Throughout chapter 1, God says, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good. And then the next thing we hear Him say is it is not good for the man to be alone. Adam needed a helper. And no beast or bird was suitable for the task. God needed to make Adam a suitable helper. Now, the Hebrew word for that uh, usually is translated corresponding to, comparable to, suited, uh, suitable, but it also means the other side or the opposite side. It's literally the image of two sides of the same coin. Men and women are two sides of the same coin. We're not different coins, one with more worth or value than the other. We are two sides of the same coin Distinctly different, yet both sharing the image of God. The word helper. He's a, she is a helper corresponding to him. That word helper is found 17 times in the Old Testament in reference to God. So those that want to say that the Bible is backward and repressive towards women, when we meet the first woman in the Bible, she is described with a word that's used 17 times for God himself. She is a helper corresponding to Adam. So you put those two words together and think about this. If God had just said, Adam, the animals are good enough, he would have had helpers inferior to him. If God had just said, Adam, I'll be your helper, he would have had a helper superior to him. But instead, God met us in the middle and he gave Adam a helper corresponding to him, suitable to him. That's why Eve doesn't come from his head to rule over him or from his feet to be trampled by him, but from his side to stand with him as an equal partner sharing the divine image of God in their work together in the world. The biblical worldview holds that men and women are equal bearers of God's image. They're equal in dignity and worth, but God also made them distinct from one another. In his book, Counterculture, David Platt writes, equal dignity does not eliminate distinction. God creates man and woman to cherish their shared equality while complementing their various differences. Adam literally could not fill the earth on his own, could he? He could not multiply and fill the earth on his own. He could not subdue and rule over the other creatures on his own. This is the importance and value of that one flesh union that we celebrate and recognize in marriage. It reflects God's design for equality in variety, for unity through diversity. In marriage, men and women uniquely cherish their shared equality while complementing their inherent differences. Men and women are equal in worth and value as bearers of God's image, but we each have unique and complementary qualities and roles. God gives us different attributes and different activities. And when we consider that, and that's a beautiful thing, this, this being equal yet diverse, it broadens our view and understanding of what it means to be created male and female. You know, we are spiritual and physical beings. That's how God made us. We are embodied. And we're embodied as either male or female. And we receive our gendered bodies as gifts from the hand of God. And sadly, that's a controversial statement today, isn't it? The idea that being male or female is a gift from God. The biological sex does matter. But I want you to hear me. The Bible and biology agree on this. Biology, real science, 
Not the pseudoscience ideology being pushed today. And listen, we are in a disturbing and dangerous place as a culture because our major institutions, many of our licensing bodies and associations in, in science and medicine are turning their back on proven, known, objective science in favor of politically driven ideology. And it's going to have dangerous consequences. Just uh, the other day I read an article, the Licensing Association Body, I can't remember what it's called, for anthropologists is now telling anthropologists they can no longer use bones to determine the sex of somebody that they find. Because you don't know what that person identified as. That, my friends, is a denial of science. It is not science. You've got this body that's looking at, that's overseeing uh, sports medicine that's now saying, and they, in fact they canceled this whole panel at a conference because the panel was going to talk about how men and women are created different. Not created, but they didn't say that. But men and women are physically different and they have different abilities when it comes to sports. And this body canceled the panel because of that. Objective truth has no place. But biology and the Bible agree on this. The notion that how you feel about your body should take precedent over the given reality of your body is actually an ancient pagan heresy. It's Gnosticism. It's ancient Gnosticism. This duality, this idea of body versus spirit, that the spirit and the spiritual is good, the body and the physical is bad, and the physical has to be subservient to the spiritual. That is not biblical. The idea that the real you is on the inside and your body means nothing is not biblical. The Bible teaches us that we are both spiritual and physical. We are equal parts earthly dirt and heavenly breath. And both of those things matter. Listen, that's why we don't believe that we spend eternity in a cloudy heaven as disembodied spirits. We believe that we'll live forever on a renewed physical earth in resurrected bodies because the body matters. The physical matters to God as much as the spiritual. Listen, I believe this is a coordinated satanic attempt to blur, confuse, and obliterate these God-given distinctions. It's madness to believe that your biological sex doesn't matter, that your body can be changed at a will, at a whim, to suit however you feel on a given day, that maleness and femaleness are just interchangeable. It's madness and it's false to say that your real self is somehow fundamentally separate from your physical body. There's nothing true, scientific, or rational about transgender ideology today or the rejection of the inherent and beautiful differences between men and women. This is an example of another modern-day religion. Because to believe, other, to believe what the transgender ideologists are telling us and the gender ideology is telling us today, these deconstruction movements, is religion. It's not about fact. It's not about science. It's about belief. And I believe that it is evil to tell children that they were born in the wrong body or that the doctor got it wrong when they were born. I mean, why would you impose such an unnecessary existential crisis on kids? It's abuse. It's cruel. As one pastor said, gender ideology is anti-truth, anti-reality, and anti-human. And it is indoctrinating and confusing millions of misguided people today. It wants to replace the world of objective truth with subjective madness. Now, I'm going to go from that hot-button topic to another one. <laughs> Second thing I want us to see this morning, humanity is distinctly diverse. 
Now, we talk about, when we talk about race, you know, we, we talk about black, we talk about white. What we're really talking about is different ethnicities. Because guess what? We're all the same race. We're all descendants of Adam and Eve. We're all of the same human family. In fact, Paul says in his sermon on Mars Hill in Acts 17, he said, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So we believe that God designed a human family that would originate from one father and mother, but then would spread across the globe and diversify as they did. Listen, God is a creative God. He loves diversity. He celebrates variety. God, thankfully, didn't just create one kind of flower or one color of butterfly or one flavor for food. Can I get an amen to that? That'd be awful, wouldn't it? God didn't create just one song for all birds to sing. He used a vast palette of colors and designs in making the world. Human diversity is just a further reflection of God's creativity. Yeah, we have different colored skin and eyes and hair. We have varying heights and widths. Uh, sometimes that does change from day to day. With different languages, cultures, talents, skills, interests. That's how God wants it to be. The Bible grounds our understanding of human diversity not in terms of race, but ethnicity. In fact, in Genesis 10.31, it talks about clans in separate nations that speak different languages in diverse lands. There are 195 nations around the world, which sounds like a lot, but there are 16,000 ethno-linguistic people groups around the world. 16,000. God has created people all over the world of every color, language, ethnicity, and culture in His image. And we're all loved by God. And we're all placed on this earth for His purpose and His glory. Just as the variety of trees and flowers reveal the majesty and the beauty of God, so does the variety in humanity. And I think that should be celebrated. Not used as a weapon. Not used to harm other people. Not used to degrade or put down anybody. But to celebrate and to affirm the worth and value of every human being. And that's not happening today. The third thing, humanity is designed with dignity with dignity. You heard in our New Testament reading this morning, Jesus tells this little story. He says, Are two pharaohs not sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your Father. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. First, here, Jesus tells us that God is our Father, revealing the intimate, loving relationship that God wants to have with everyone. And secondly, that He, our Creator, sees, knows, and cares about every detail of our lives. You are worth more than many sparrows. I think Jesus maybe is using understatement there as a dramatic effect, right? Let me ask you this. Based on this illustration, at what point is a life too small or too insignificant in the eyes of our Heavenly Father? Is the value of life found in your size, your age, your appearance, your abilities? Is human life only worth what can be accomplished or produced? Or is human worth intrinsic, distinct, and set apart from any physical characteristic? There are roughly 42 million abortions performed around the world every year. That's 115,000 a day. 
Nearly 4,800 unborn babies aborted every hour. That's 80 babies, 80 bearers of God's image killed in the womb every minute. You can't keep count of the rate at which innocent human lives are being taken. And these kind of numbers can numb us and, 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 can, and, and can be too easily dismissed, but not to God. Listen, the underlying question in the abortion debate, and there's a lot of feelings about this. I understand. The feelings can run high about this. It's going to be a political hot-button issue in this election this year. It already has been. But the underlying question is whether that which is in the womb is a child, a human being created in the image of God for whom Jesus died. If you can answer that question, what is in the womb, everything else about this comes into perspective. One author put it this way. If the unborn is not a human person, there is no justification for abortion needed. If all that fetus or embryo is is just a mass of cells and tissues with the potential of becoming a human, whatever that's supposed to mean, then the argument's over. You don't need to justify abortion any more than you would an appendectomy. But you know what science has taught us since Roe v. Wade was first passed? That that embryo, that fetus, is more than just a clump of cells or a mass of tissues. It is a genetically distinct human being in the womb. And so this author goes on and says, if the unborn is a human person, then no justification for abortion is possible. Listen, it doesn't matter how complex this issue may seem. If what is in the womb is a person, then every argument in favor of abortion falls apart. The psalmist writes in Psalm 139, For it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wondrously made. Your works are wondrous and I know this very well. That word created there literally can be translated acquired or purchased. And then it says that he knit, he wove together. The image here is God going out and gathering the materials he needs to knit you together like your grandma's knitting a sweater. Think about that. That's a pretty good picture of how a baby is conceived. God takes the material, the DNA from the mother and from the father, and weaves together an entirely new person. Unique. No one ever again will be like that baby. God formed Adam like a potter working the clay to make a jar, a bowl. When it talks about God taking Adam's rib and making a woman, that Hebrew word there literally means constructed or built. It's the image of a stonemason building a house, building a temple. God took that raw material from Adam and built and constructed a temple that is woman. And within the womb of that woman, God takes material that He's already made from the man and the woman, stuff of heaven, stuff of earth, and He knits, He weaves, He crafts together a brand new person. Look at the language. Look at the image the Bible uses to describe how we're made and how God personalizes each one of us and how He's intimately involved in every one of our lives. Every second of the day around the world, God is at work creating new people. You were designed by God as a distinct person. Unique. Again, there's never been anyone like you and there never will be again. You are truly one of a kind. And that means you have infinite worth and value. God crafted you. He knew you before you were born. He loves you. You matter to Him. He has a purpose and a plan for your life. Think about that for just a minute. But sin has masked and marred the image of God within us. 
Satan is your enemy. He wants to confuse you to your true nature. He wants to tell you you're just an animal. Your life has no meaning aside from pursuing pleasure and living for yourself. He wants you to deny God's image. He wants you to deny your distinctiveness and your dignity. But God so loved you that He sent His one and only Son, Jesus Christ, to die for you so that you could be redeemed from your sin, so that the image of God could be restored to its fullness within you. That's the good news. Our culture has come to celebrate and embrace this culture of death. Euthanasia. Listen, in Canada, they are literally recommending euthanasia to people as a first course of action when they're depressed. When they come in and they've got cancer, when they begin to show signs of dementia, Canada has become so radical in this that one of the first things these counselors, so-called, and physicians will offer them is death because it's easier, it's quicker, and it's less expensive on the Canadian healthcare system. That's coming to states in this country. We have a culture of death. Euthanasia and abortion have been called the evil reverse image of the gospel. Because they say, you're too costly, you're too inconvenient, you're too far gone, my life would be better if you were not here, so I will kill you for me. You die for me. But in the Gospel, the Lord God says, there is no cost, there is no inconvenience, there is no hardship or punishment that I won't suffer for you, I will die for you. That's the Gospel. That's how much God loves you. Do you know that, Jesus? Do you know that Jesus who loved you so much that He came and He died for your sins? I pray that you do. And if you don't, I ask you to come today to faith in Jesus Christ. Let Him give you a new insight to who you are. Let Him help you see yourself and others through God's eyes. Let Him transform you from the inside out so you can come to really know and appreciate how much God loves you, how much you matter in this world. Maybe for you, you're already a Christian, but you're being convicted because you've bought into and adopted some of these philosophies and worldviews of a lost and dying world that stands against the God of the Bible. And it's just snuck in. It's crept into your life. Through media, through education, through things that you read, things that you watch on YouTube, whatever it is, the TikTok videos, you've allowed this mind virus to infect you. It's not too late. God can renew your mind. God can transform you from the inside out. Maybe you need to come in repentance and ask God to renew you, to rededicate your life to pursuing and knowing and living out the truth of His Word. Or maybe God is calling you and your family to partner with us at First Baptist Church, joining this church family as we seek to reach our neighbors and the nations and all generations with the gospel of Jesus Christ because we believe that every person matters and that no one is too far gone for the gospel. And God can change and save lives and He does it every single day. Would you stand with me and pray? And as we sing here in just a moment, please come and respond. The altar is open for you to pray. Let's be obedient to God's prompting. Father, thank You for creating each and every one of us, Lord. We are not here by accident. Lord, we didn't have to be here. In Your infinite grace and mercy, You chose to place every single one of us in this world. And God, this world is broken, it is marred by sin, and in every one of us, we have things in our past, Lord, that, that have broken us, things that we're ashamed of, things that have wounded us, things by which we've wounded other people, Lord. And we know You are a God of infinite grace and mercy, and it doesn't matter what anybody has done, You can forgive, You can renew, You can restore, You can heal. 
And if there's anyone here today that needs that, I pray they will come. And they'll cast whatever burden, whatever pain and regret, whatever agony and grief, whatever shame they may have at the foot of the cross, God, that you would relieve them of that. Fill them with your Spirit and make them new today. God, help us to see everyone around us as people made in your image for whom Jesus died. They love and they matter to you. They should matter to us as well. May we be obedient to what your Spirit says to us in this moment and in the coming week. In Jesus' name we pray.